Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Living God. Help us this morning to hear your holy word that we may truly understand and that understanding we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. In the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Aliens. The answer is aliens. Who built the great pyramids in Egypt? Aliens. The majestic temples of the ancient Mayan civilizations? Aliens. The great stone circle in England, Stonehenge? Aliens. Built by these ancient astronauts, extraterrestrials. In fact, most, if not all, of the wonders of the ancient world, from the temple complex in Pumapunku to the mysterious Nazca Lines in Peru, were built by aliens at least according to the History Channel, and that guy with the crazy hair. I don't believe that, okay? Now, these structures were built by humans. So their answer is wrong, but their question is a good one. Why did all these ancient civilizations build these temples from the Egyptians to the, to, in Africa to the Mayans in South America and Mexico, the pyramids, Stonehenge, temples to gods? Buddhist temples in Asia, Hindu temples in India, they're all across the globe, across every ancient civilization. Why? Well, the answer isn't aliens. The answer is simple. All human civilizations and all humans are seeking to get in touch with the supernatural somehow. If only they might offer enough prayers, enough sacrifices, light enough candles, meditate long enough, maybe, just maybe, the gods will descend and bless them with fulfillment. They're seeking to create a space to interact with the spiritual, the supernatural. Even modern Western society is not exempt from this. The proof is everywhere. Yoga studios, energy crystals, spiritual vortexes, prayer labyrinths are all attempts at the same thing, a divine encounter, the divine presence, an attempt to get in touch with the spiritual, an attempt to find spiritual fulfillment. Others attempt this through purely physical means. Sex, drugs, music, adrenaline rushes, work, and many other ways. And even as professing Christians, we sinfully pursue these things in our worst moments. But they never work. They never satisfy. They never actually result in what we're chasing. They never actually result in an encounter with the true and living God. Why? Because we can't get to God no matter how hard we try, no matter how long we meditate, no matter how many sacrifices we offer, no matter how much blood is spilled or candles lit or whatever it may be, we cannot get to the true God. If anything, we succeed at merely worshiping a man-made idol. The situation is hopeless. But, but what if instead of humanity trying to get to God, God descended to humanity? What if in God's mercy and in his grace, he gave the plans for a true temple to his people? 
a true place to worship, a true sacred place where the divine presence really would reside. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning, that's, we're going to see that that's exactly what God did with Solomon. Last week, we heard all about Solomon's wisdom. And this week, we're going to watch as Solomon uses that wisdom to construct his famous temple. And we're going to see that we can trust God with all that we are because God fulfills all of his promises. Now, we're going to be looking at a large portion of the text this morning. So we're not going to read every single verse. Otherwise, that would take up the entire time of the sermon. So what I want to do first is kind of summarize what exactly is going on in the text that we're going to look at this morning. And then we're going to go back and hit certain points and see what we can learn from it. So three chapters, well, two and a half, three and a half. Uh, Math is not my strong suit. Now, the first week, we saw the establishment of Solomon's throne. Last week, we saw the origin and fruit of Solomon's wisdom. And this week, we're going to see the temple. So essentially, here's a summary. In 1 Kings 5, we get a summary of another picture of Solomon's wisdom. Solomon uses his wisdom to make a treaty with Hiram, the king of Tyre, uh, to gain gain access to all the building materials that he needs uh, to build the temple. In 1 Kings 6, through pretty much the end of chapter 7, it's all a construction report. It's a construction report mostly of the temple with about 12 verses sprinkled in um, about Solomon's own palace. In 1 Kings 8, 1 through 11, the, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to the temple and the temple is finished. So that's the overview of, of what we're going to look at this morning. So now let's, let's dive into the text and see what God has for us. Well, the first thing I noticed as I began to study this passage, and then I want you to hear this morning, is that you can trust God because God always keeps his promises. You can trust God. God always keeps his promises. He's always faithful to his promises. In other words, you can trust God with your life because he always does what he says he will do. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that there are times in your life where this is harder and times where it's easier. There's times when your faith wanes and times when your faith just surges forth. But the author of 1 Kings is writing to a people who are in a dark time, a people in exile. See, the Israelites, God's chosen people, had been conquered. Their temple had already been destroyed. Their city had been destroyed. And they had been carted off to Babylon. It was a dark time in the nation's history. But that is exactly why 1 Kings is written the way that it is. The author continually shows how faithful God is to fulfilling his promises. This is to show the Israelites in exile that God will be faithful to the promises he had made to them, even though they can't see it. Even when they're in a dark situation. Even when they can't understand God's plan. And even when everything looks terrible, God is still faithful. God is still working and he will do what he says he will do. So we're going to see several evidences of that in our text this morning. The first one is pretty obvious. God had promised wisdom to Solomon. We saw that last week. He had promised wisdom, wealth, and honor to Solomon. And simply in our text this morning, we see that God gives all those things to Solomon. We see evidence of it. In chapter 5, Solomon uses his newfound wisdom to broker a treaty with Hiram to purchase the necessary labor and materials. It's his wisdom on display. Look at uh, 1 Kings 5 verse 12. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty. So Solomon had wisdom. Why? Because God had promised it and God gave it. God did what he said. As for Solomon's wealth, 
The temple he builds for the Lord is built with the most expensive wood, the cedars of Lebanon, and the entire thing, the entire thing on the inside is covered with gold. God had promised Solomon wealth and God fulfilled it. As for Solomon's honor and fame, well, the temple itself brought Solomon honor as the king who built it. The pure grandeur of the temple and Solomon's own palace brought honor and fame, as we'll see in a few weeks when we look at some further texts. People came from all over the world to see his great palace and his great temple that he had built. God had promised and God fulfilled it. Second, God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7, 11, that when his son took the throne, Israel would experience rest from her enemies and peace and that David's son would build him a house. Now, if you remember, during David's time, Israel was constantly at war with their enemies, but God promised rest. Turn real quick to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. This is the Lord promising to David. Here's what he said. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now listen to Solomon's message to Hiram in 1 Kings 5. 1 Kings 5, 3 through 5. Notice the similarity in language. This is what Solomon says to King Hiram. You know, that my, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord had said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set, on the throne in your place shall build a house for my name. Solomon says, I'm only doing exactly what God has promised because God has made a way for it to happen. Do you see that? The Lord had promised and the Lord fulfilled it. He had promised David peace and he made peace. He had promised David a son. He gave David a son. He had promised David that his son's throne would be established and it was established. He had promised David that his son would build a house for the Lord. And so he did. God promised and God did it. God promised and he made it happen. Now here's the biggest one. God had promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 and 15 that one day he would make his children into a nation, that he would give them a land of their own to dwell in. He also told Abraham that before this would happen, that they would spend 400 years in slavery. Now think about how far back this promise is coming from. God made this promise to an old man with no children and a barren wife. And they had turned into a large family. And they had gone to dwell in Egypt. And after hundreds of years, the Israelites came out of slavery, all, being, all promises fulfilled by God. They came out a large group. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then they came to the promised land. And the Lord led them through led them through Joshua to conquer this promised land. And through David, he secured the promised land for the people of God. And now Solomon stands in that same line of promises going all the way back to Abraham. And he stands finally with peace in the promised land. 
peace enough to build and spend money and time, seven years building a magnificent temple for the Lord, all because of a promise. So, so don't let that slip by. Think about it for a second. The Israelites had been enslaved for hundreds of years and then wandered in the desert and then at war for a long time. But now their time of war is over. The wandering is over. Look at the words beginning chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 in 1 Kings. Listen to the language. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house for the Lord. 480 years. The promise had gone from Abraham to Solomon. God had promised and God did it. Brothers and sisters, our God is faithful and he always keeps his promises. No promise that he makes ever goes unfulfilled. And you see, the author of Kings needed to remind himself and the people of that. And today, you and I need to be reminded of that because we so quickly forget. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness, that God keeps his promises. It has been said that the great fight of the Christian life is to trust God. And that is so true. And that is why we need to constantly stoke the flames of our faith, of our trust with the fuel of God's fulfilled promises. Christian, on good days and bad days, we need to constantly put before our eyes God's past faithfulness. We need to constantly put before our eyes and our souls the great promises of our great Lord. Otherwise, we won't survive this life because we're forgetful. And when we forget the faithfulness of God, when we forget that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, when you stop trusting God, the consequences are devastating. When we forget God's faithfulness, we fall into despair. We lose hope. We lose joy. When we forget God's faithfulness, we begin to worry and become anxious. When we forget God's faithfulness to his promises, we begin to look to every, anything and everything else to fulfill our lives. To look, we begin to look, when we forget God's faithfulness, to anything else for security. We begin to grasp at everything because it's when we doubt the goodness and when we doubt and forget the faithfulness of God that we choose sin. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you came in rejoicing or with a heavy heart, if you're in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a struggle, or if your faith is at an all-time high in God. But what I do know, what I do know is that God does what he says he is faithful. And what our Father promises, our Father also fulfills. So whatever the state of your heart this morning, whatever your circumstances, let that sink in. Let that be a balm to your weary soul, that God is faithful. And what he says he will do, he will do. And as new covenant believers, God has promised us a lot of things. He's made a lot of promises, but I want to highlight one passage for you. And I have shown from the first Kings that God is faithful to his promises. That's what the author is trying to get us to see. So now as new covenant believers, let this passage from the New Testament sink in. God has promised these things and he will do them. I want to read, from you, read for you a passage from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Let this sink into your hearts this morning. Romans 8, 28. This is God's promise to you, Christian. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, the apostle Paul writes, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is a promise to you, Christian. God has promised it, and he will fulfill it. He does what he says. Those are your promises. God always keeps his promises. You can trust that this morning. So trust in him this morning. Maybe you've forgotten that this morning. Remember, remember. Now the temple building itself is a fulfillment of God's promises to his people because the temple was a visible sign to God's people that God was with them. Remember back in Moses' day, God had instructed Moses to build the tabernacle and he had said the same thing, that the tabernacle will be the place that the presence of God will dwell Tabernacle showed the people of Israel that God was with them. They were wandering, and so God's dwelling place was a tent. They could pack it up and take it with them. But now they're at rest in the land, and God's dwelling place is a building. He is with them. It's a a sign to Israel and all the surrounding nations that Yahweh, the God of Israel, dwells here. Now the next couple of chapters, 6 and 7, are basically a construction report. But by examining the temple and what is inside, we can learn about the character of God. And what we find when we take a close look at the temple is somewhat of a paradox. It's it's what I like to call the, the paradox of God's presence. And it's this, that God's presence with his people is beautiful and glorious, but it's also dangerous. His presence is beautiful, but it's also dangerous. I think you'll see what I mean in a minute. We see this in the temple itself. So we're going to look at the beauty first. The beauty of God's presence, the blessing of God's presence is not hard to see. The temple, uh, and I think I have a picture of kind of like an artist rendering on there. The temple was beautiful. Everything is covered in gold. Everything. All of the furnishings, all of the walls, all of the floors, all the ceilings, the steps, the doors, The cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant, everything is covered in gold. So it says in 1 Kings chapter 6, 21 and 22. And Solomon 
overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. So the entire inside of the temple, everything in there, every wall, every ceiling, every floor is gold. Can you imagine what it must have been like to walk in and see a building like that? To walk through the front door, to smell the incense, to see the gold laid out. Must have been stunning. Must have been beautiful. And it was supposed to be. Because the temple was supposed to be like an outpost of heaven here on earth. The temple symbolized Yahweh's throne room. But there's more. Not only was it covered in gold, it was covered with symbols. One of the things you'll notice if you read this account in detail of the temple construction is that plastered all over everything are palm trees and open flowers and pomegranates. Now, what do these symbolize? Well, just put yourself in the mind of someone living in an ancient culture, uh, in a culture that had just spent hundreds of years wandering through the desert. Palm trees, to see a grouping of palm trees on the horizon was to see life, rest, shade, water. These were signs of life, a sign of an oasis, a paradise. Pomegranates and flowers in the same way are symbols of life, of abundance. And when we look at the temple, we see the walls decorated in these symbols, communicating to us that our God is a God of rest, of abundance, of pleasure, of life. These symbols are symbols of Eden, symbols of paradise in the midst of this life. And I, I don't know why, but sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes in our, in our pride, in our arrogance, in our ignorance, we think that God is stingy or, or that God doesn't want us to have good things or that God doesn't want us to have pleasure. But that is a lie straight from the mouth of Satan himself. God is a God of pleasure. God created food and gave us taste buds. God created sex. God created us. God created pleasure. And God created every good thing that we have. When Jesus came, he came eating and drinking. All throughout the Old Testament, the symbols of blessing on God's people are physical. An abundance of food. An abundance of wine. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1611, now hear this, Psalm 1611, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when you look at the majesty, at the splendor and the glory of the temple, remember that it represents who God is. It represents the beauty and the blessing that it is to dwell in his presence. But what about the danger? I mean, if God is so amazing, how, how could he be dangerous? Well, let's continue to examine the temple and see what else is in the temple. First, the temple just right off the bat depicts a separation. Walls are everywhere. The doors, there's doors in each section shut. People can't see in, people can't go in. And for their own safety. The place where God dwells, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, that last chamber there is completely closed off to people. Once a year, one man, the high priest, was allowed to go in. Once a year, one person was allowed to directly go into God's presence, into his throne room. Not exactly open access. 
let's look at the description of the, con- of the construction of the Holy of Holies, and we'll get a better picture of some of the things going on. 1 Kings chapter 6, 23 begins this way. Pick up the signs of separation. In the inner sanctuary, that's the Holy of Holies, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was the other. There's two. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house. That's the Holy of Holies. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And their wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So the Holy of Holies, Yahweh's throne. Okay, 2 Samuel says that Yahweh sits enthroned on the cherubim. That's, that's the picture. And these two cherubim are huge. So 10 cubits is about 15 feet high. So they're 15 feet high each. And their wings spanned the entire room. Now the room was 30 feet wide. So these are two massive statues, completely overlaid in gold with their wings outstretched. So if you saw it, if you, if you peered into the Holy of Holies, you would see these two great angels with their wings outstretched and the Ark of the Covenant in the center. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was one thing, the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments. What a potent reminder of one's sinfulness. In Yahweh's throne room was a reminder that we are sinful. And the two massive statues would strike fear into the hearts of anyone. See, this would have been quite terrifying, but it doesn't stop there. The temple furnishings are also telling. A massive 15-foot altar for sacrificing animals, for spilling blood. Ten basins filled with water for purification, for cleansing. Tools made of bronze for the cleansing and killing of animals. The picture is clear. The, The temple is a beautiful place, but it's also a bloody place. The temple is a depiction of, of the holiness, the utter otherness of God and the separation that is between him and us because of sin. The temple is a depiction of how holy God is and how sinful we are. The temple was a depiction that you can't enter into God's presence, not without blood. It was dangerous. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. Multiple people were killed for mishandling the things of God. Remember the story of Isaiah. When he was shown the throne room of God, his reaction, I'm a dead man. Woe is me. It's the dangerous presence of God. We see a depiction of this even when the temple is finished. In 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, the priests have just finished putting the ark inside. It's kind of the last piece to get everything ready. And as soon as they do it, look at, look at 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, which is a good and beautiful thing, but the glory of the Lord also pushed the people out. They could not stand in the presence of the glory of the Lord. So this is good. I mean, this is God's seal of approval on the temple. But the priests can no longer minister in the temple. God's glory is not a habitable place for humans at this time because we're sinful. God is both beautiful and dangerous. 
This is also depicted well in 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. God appears to Solomon in the middle of the construction. And look what he says in, in 1 Kings 6, 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Here's what he says. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. In other words, Solomon, yeah, this temple, this is nice, but don't think that that's everything. You know what's really important, Solomon, is to keep my commandments. Don't think for a second that because you have this nice, new, shiny building that you can just do whatever you want. You see, God's blessing is on Solomon, but a warning is issued as well. There's danger outside of God's laws. God's presence is beautiful and blessing, and this temple is beautiful and a blessing, but it's also dangerous. Laid up at the focal point of the temple is the Ten Commandments again. And so this is the paradox the temple presents. God is with the Israelites, but sin has separated them from him. And ultimately, Solomon will sin, and Israel will apostatize, and the temple will be destroyed. God's presence is dangerous to sinners like us. That is the problem. But the temple was just a shadow. The temple was a foreshadowing of what was to come. The temple was a man-made depiction of God's glory. But in the man, Jesus Christ, God himself came to dwell with us. John 1.14 puts it this way, and the wording is specific. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, that's the word used, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The last time the glory appeared in Israel, people were pushed out. This time people are drawn to it. See, the temple was the fulfilling of a promise that God would dwell with his people, but it was temporary. It was conditional. But Christ, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all the temple represented. Every ceremony performed in the temple, every piece of furniture that was in the temple, every sacrifice made in the temple, and all the symbolism pointed forward to Christ. And he fulfilled all of it. The Israelites of old had to make sacrifices daily. Jesus is our once for all sacrifice. The Israelites of old had to purify themselves with water, but we are purified by the very blood of Christ. The Israelites of old were shut out from the Holy of Holies, but when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The priests of old entered into the presence of God with trembling, and rightfully so. Yet the book of Hebrews tells us that because of the blood of Jesus, we can now enter the holy of holies with boldness and confidence as sons and daughters. The Israelites of old saw the glory of God in a cloud. But 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Israelites of old had a temple in their city. But brothers and sisters, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in us, in us. You see, we talked earlier in the sermon about God fulfilling his promises. There is no greater list of promises than those that have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. This is why you can and must trust God in his son. God has solved the paradox of his presence this becomes most evident in the book of Revelation. You see, there are only two cubes in the whole Bible. The Holy of Holies is one, and the other is the New Jerusalem. 
Both are entirely made of gold. And I, I hope you get the picture. One day when Christ returns and all things are made new, the whole earth will be as the Holy of Holies directly in the presence of God for all time. And we will dwell eternally in the holiest place for all time in fullness of joy at the right hand of the God who created all these things. Hear the words of the Apostle John. He describes this in Revelation 21. He says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Notice the cube language. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. Okay, he's emphasizing that saying, This is like the Holy of Holies. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Everything is gold. Down in chapter, down in verse 22 in chapter 21, it says this. Now notice the whole city. That was the description of the whole city. And he says this in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of the For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's no temple in the city because it doesn't need one. The whole place is the temple. God Almighty, we are dwelling in his very presence. See, for those who trust in Christ, there is no longer any danger in the presence of God. For there is no longer any condemnation for sin. Christ paid the price. Christ bore our sin in his body on the tree. And three days later, he victoriously rose from the dead. And now, filled with the Holy Spirit, we will dwell directly in the presence of God for all time. In fact, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a guarantee that that will one day be the case. This is why we can and must trust God. For those who are in Christ, for those who believe this is our future, God has promised and he will do it. And for any of you who don't know Christ as Savior, heed the warning that these texts present The only way to eternal life is through faith in Jesus Christ. So this morning, cast yourself on his mercy. The only way into the dwelling of God is through the blood of Christ. Pray to him. Cry out for faith. Cry out for mercy this morning if you don't know him. And you will find him to be a perfect and merciful savior. So dear brothers and sisters, wherever you're at this morning, may this be your hope. Would you look away from your problems, from your pain, from your sin, and look to Christ Jesus, our hope. Let the promises of God sustain you in the darkest of times, in the brightest of times. Let the promises of God determine the course of your life. And let the promises of God keep you from sin this morning and this week. God has promised he will surely do it. So let us trust in him this morning and forevermore. Let us end with a reading of scripture from Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what it says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Beyond measure, beyond all comprehension, Lord, you have blessed us in your Son, Jesus. You have washed us clean through his blood, and you have given us life through his resurrection. Father, I pray for everyone here, Lord, would you deepen our trust in you this morning? Would you enlighten our hearts to the great truth of your promises this morning. Father, as we go about our weeks, would you constantly bring them to mind? As we encounter struggles, as we encounter trials, Lord, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of the promises that you have given. And Father, for those here who, who don't know you, Lord, would you, would you open their eyes to see your beauty this morning? Would you open their eyes to see the danger that they're in this morning? Lord, and would you bring them to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and wash them with his blood. Spirit, give life this morning. Lord, we, we direct all these things to you for your glory and our edification. Thank you, we pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.